Well, good day to you. It's Joel with the King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Hey, dear. What do you have to drink? I would like a cider. Our friend Catherine brought a pack of ciders from Supreme Court Cider, which is based in D.C. Um, it's called Cherry Bloom, and it's delicious, and it's just in time for cherry blossom season. Yeah, I like it too. We could share it. Uh, I don't like that we're uh, promoting this without <laughs> getting paid for it, but uh, anything for Catherine. Anything for Catherine. This is Where is the Love? I'm Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And uh, Melissa, it's really good to... uh, I've been looking forward to this all day. Me too. Because we really haven't... uh, We've both been traveling. Yes, a lot of travel. Yeah, good stuff though. Good stuff though, but it's better to be with you. No, it's 100% better to be at home with you. With our babies. And our babies. Alaria turned one. Yep, Alaria turned one. And she just had a great birthday. She had a wonderful birthday. She uh, she did better with the cake than her sister did on yeah, her first birthday, I think. she was super into it, all about it. And and she had like a legitimate party. Sirsha. Yeah. Sirsha got yeah. It was we were all bleary eyed and yeah. Uh, and so don't it was very good. And so Melissa and I have had traveled the last uh, few days. Um, we'll tell you a bit about that, but we got back and the girls were just so sweet to have. So I got back on Saturday, like, well, no, Friday night. Melissa got back Sunday. But at like midnight, so but this at morning midnight. technically. And like they were happy to see me. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think they're happy to see you. There's just something that happens with the girls Uh when we're both together yeah. and we're, when the whole family is back together. Yeah. And even Alaria acts more content for being one. Like she seems aware of that type of dynamic. Yeah. She craves it. Yeah. They were, yeah. The girls were so sweet today. Uh, you, uh, you FaceTimed with us on Sunday morning Yeah, and you were wearing these beautiful, cute braids. I love when you got the braids, but Saoirse saw them and she was enamored yeah, she and really was. so you said that you'd give her braids the next morning, and of course, our daughter like woke up, ran into the room, and I was like, "Mama, you're gonna give me braids!" <laughs> like, yes. you know. And I did, and she stayed still the entire time I did her hair. Where, where usually she's like, it's like trying to do the hair of like a, I don't even know, some kind of wild trying animal. to. It's like trying to wrangle one of those uh, inflatable things in front of stores. Yes, that, yes, yes. <laughs> You know the, what I mean? The, the air, the our man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, trying to trying to braid that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that describes you very well. Yes, yes. Um, but Melissa, you were in San Diego. I was in San Diego. I went to San Diego for the very first time. I've been to other parts of California, but never San Diego, never that south. Um, and it was an interesting city. I liked it. 
Um, but what I was there for uh, was for BioLogos's um, uh, biannual conference, the Faith and Science Conference, and it was so much fun because I am I am a social scientist, people. I am not a hard sciences person, so I sit in an audience like this just in awe of the way that people think. And so what BioLogos is is it's it's an um, an organization. Um, Founded by Dr. Francis Collins, who you know led the NIH for a long time and is now you know working for the president, um, and the president of BioLogos now is Deb Harsma, who is wonderful, the best. We love Deb. We love Deb so much and her leadership, and so that's why uh, I ended up going and wanted to go and learn so much. And there were some fantastic talks. Deb's talk in particular was really really good on just the intersection of faith and science because that's what BioLogos does. They take Christ-centered faith, rigorous science, and gracious dialogue and put it all together. And it's so, so needed. So needed. In this time when we are still in the middle of a pandemic, they're speaking into these things with scientists who are who are Christians. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's a it's, wonderful witness. It's a wonderful model for an organization. And... They had some friends, uh, so Mako. Yeah, Mako spoke. Mako spoke. So he did we a, love Mako. He did a live podcast recording. So if you're interested in a new podcast, The Language of God is really, really good. Highly wreck it. And they had Mako on talking about art and science. Very and it was cool. a dynamic convo. And then Francis Collins spoke. Um, and and David Brooke uh, spoke. And they were really great. They yeah. talked about what it's like, what it, what it means to be human, which is such an interesting idea yeah but um i actually just checked before we started recording just to make sure but you can go i'll post this in the episode notes but you can um buy a virtual pass and watch these talks for as low as 15 dollars, and it's open until april 2nd so i'll post that in case you know yeah this in case folks want to check interest. it out yeah sure uh and but we're glad to have you home yes you, very you did get home. you got fish tacos and those exceeded expectations uh, the, the one fish taco I had was the best taco I've ever had in my life. Maybe that means I haven't had enough tacos, but... No, San Diego is definitely a legit it was, place. Yeah. It was a revelation of a taco. And then I went and walked on the pier while it was just oh, gorgeous, wow. sunny, 75 people on the beach. People surfing. There were so many surfers. I don't remember being in a place ever before where there were so many surfers mm. out in the water. Yeah. Um, I prefer the Pacific. I prefer the West Coast. Um... Yeah. I don't know. And then uh, you did in and out and that was oh. way below expectations. Y'all, okay. I like in and out a lot. I prefer Shake Shack. Shake Shack is my number one, but in and out was my number two. This was the first bad in and out I've ever had, and I was devastated. I only ended up eating half the burger and half the fries because I was like, why am I eating this when it doesn't taste good? Yeah. <laughs> then I went back no, to the hotel and bought get, M&Ms. Yeah, to get all the way out to California <laughs> yeah. and get a bad batch so, of So San Diego in and out. Zero out of ten. Do not recommend. Yeah, uh, I had great travel. Was in Charlottesville and loved being by UVA and saw some great folks down down there. I can't give too many details on that, but uh, but Charlottesville is just uh, an amazing place. Um, but I wanted to talk just briefly about today. Uh, I had the opportunity. Uh, to attend an event hosted by uh, the Renew America movement. And uh, the Renew America movement uh, is uh, a bipartisan uh, organization that's 
working to elect pro-democracy uh, 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 elected officials and to support reform and reject radicalism and extremism. Uh, and uh, their uh, co-founder uh, is Miles Taylor and Evan McMullen. A lot of great folks are associated uh, with the organization, folks I've worked with in the past, like Congressman uh, Charlie Dent uh, 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 and my, my friend Joel Searby, uh, Michael Steele's associated. Uh, it's, it's really a, a pretty incredible organization. I was able to attend this event and hear from a number of elected officials, uh, including uh, Congresswoman Sidney Axney, who's a Democrat from Iowa, mm -hmm. uh, Congressman uh, Matt uh, Cartwright from uh a uh, swing district in Pennsylvania. Uh, these are folks that, uh, so Cartwright, Kim, and I think even Axney uh, are Democrats, but in Trump districts. Oh, so okay. there are only yeah. seven Democrats that that won in, in districts where Trump carried the presidential vote. Uh, and so I love the disposition of the members that were there. Have to say, Andy Kim, Kind of made a serious impression. Maybe the I'm an Obama guy. Andy Kim worked in the Obama administration. I didn't work with him. He was in the National Security Council. Mm. Um, I didn't work with him too closely. Uh, but gosh, so it, uh, uh, for the for listeners, you may recognize Andy Kim. He's the one who uh, was. There were all all these photos of him picking up trash. Uh, trying to clean up the Capitol oh, after yes. okay. January 6th. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and it was really moving. I think a lot of people saw this is what public servants, this is what this elected is what officials like. uh, can, can be like. And really, like this is what is going to be necessary in the wake of the kinds of challenges that we're facing. Uh, I was super impressed with his humility, uh, the, the spirit of service that he he brought, and so I'm encouraged by Renew America movement. Uh, it, it is, I mean, so their their uh, their founders, uh, Miles and Evan McMullen, these are both Republicans, and uh, I, I think they're still, you know, they're conservatives. They support, you know, Republican principles. Uh, uh, at least what how they uh, uh, sort of put forth Republican principles, and yet I, really moved by. Uh, uh, got to hear from Miles Taylor as well, and, and, and Miles sort of sort of conveyed that. Uh, uh, look, there there are some things more important than political party, that there are some some moments that require a leadership that transcends the partisan divide. And there were folks in that room who had sacrificed a great deal to follow their conscience, to do what they thought was, was best for the country. Um, and uh, and I appreciate the work the work they're doing. I, I do think that we need a, a shakeup of uh, leadership. I do think that uh, so many of the American people are looking for elected officials that are uh, that seem to not be playing games and just be trying to serve the people. Um, and so would urge you to check out Renew America Movement. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not someone who 
uh, sort of invests in a whole, you know, range of, of, of efforts, you know, like this. Um, and I'm just starting to get to know Renew American Movement. But uh, Joel Searby is uh, involved uh, here. And uh, man, I trust Joel Searby. And uh, he's someone who's been leading for a long time in a faithful way. And, and that's something I really appreciate. So uh, it was it was it was nice being in, uh, in in DC, being with these members, Melissa, and uh, getting to hear from members of Congress currently in Congress now. Um, yeah, that not are just former, mm-hmm. not just former members, yeah. not folks who don't have uh, uh, elections ahead of them. Right. Uh, these are folks who are making tough decisions now and working to. Uh, get bipartisan legislation yeah. uh not just sponsored but but passed and mm-hmm. and uh gosh we could we could use uh we could use more of that so uh really really grateful for that opportunity uh melissa we have uh a couple uh, items we want to get to today I, th- I think first we heard so much feedback from uh folks in response to the episode we did a few weeks back on Russia and on Ukraine. when the crisis started. Um, And we want to revisit that and give folks something of an update on what the current status is, where things stand. Uh, Melissa, would you you like to sort of dive in here and and catch people up to speed as as much as possible on on the current state of things? Yeah, I'll take over now. the response to that episode was um, far-reaching. We 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 got a we got a lot of people telling us that it was super helpful to them, which we just love hearing feedback in the first place. So feedback yeah. on a, any of our episodes is always wonderful to hear. We really want to hear what you think. But I thought we're a few we're a few weeks into this war now. Um, it's still taking up the headlines if you go to like NewYorkTimes.com or Washington Post or things like that. But and it's still there on social media, but I feel like some of the attention is dying a little bit, but we're still hyper-focused on it. It's obviously one of the most consequential things going on right now in the world, and we, we cannot forget that point. And so I'll take us through what's going, what's the latest, especially if you haven't really been able to closely follow it, because I get it, information overload day after day, especially when it comes to war and keeping up with the war. Um, and maybe just try to look ahead a little bit as much as I possibly can. Um, so right now in Ukraine, it is a shock and awe campaign. That is probably what you've been, if you've been looking at it at all, that's what you might have noticed over the past couple of weeks. It's a shock and awe campaign by, by the Russians. And it's because they've now realized that they're having such a hard time actually, you know, going city by city, taking over, that the Ukrainians are defending themselves quite well that they want to start attacking places of culture, places where women and children are residing, places where people are sheltering. Um, and you see that really in Maripol, um, Ukraine, which is in the southeastern um, Ukraine. And it's a, it's a, it's right on the water. It's a, it's a port town. And they have been shelling that city to the point where it's pretty much every single building in that city has been damaged by bombings so far. And Maripol might go down. Ukrainians are still there fighting, but President Zelensky has told his fighters that if there is a chance to retreat, that they should do it and do it safely. Um, Ukrainians did just take back Irpin today. Um, that was reported. 
And what Russia's trying to do is just scare Ukrainians, scare them into, you know, to stop fighting. And chemical weapons are now on the table, which I'll, I'll go into that a little bit more. But so far, the Ukrainians are saying, no, we're not going down without a fight. You can't scare us still. Um, just today, President Zelensky um, said that he's open to neutrality in the peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. So what does that mean? What does neutrality mean? It means that Ukraine would become a neutral country, meaning that it would definitely no longer join NATO. Um, or the EU, potentially. Um, <clears throat> we'll see if the Russians are open to that. I, you know, obviously, I'm assuming this is me, the crystal ball, uh, looking into a crystal ball, is that President Zelensky is going to have to ask for Russians to leave, stop. Um, and so that will be a huge decision on the Russians' part in terms of a, a, if, if neutrality is, in fact, good enough for them and satisfies um, Vladimir Putin. On the refugee situation, there are now 3.8 million refugees. It's pretty much the largest um, uh, group of refugees that Europe has seen in decades upon decades. It, uh, 3.8 million people. That's a lot of people. Now, President Biden recently announced that the United States would accept 100,000 refugees, which is a laudable number. And um, also, our European allies have said that they would accept large numbers. And the EU even said that it would waive the typical wait times and application process for for um, asylum applicants, which is great. But there, there is one thing that I want to point out here is that there's a decision to accept, and then there's decisions around long-term commitments refugees need, not only by the state, but the communities that accept them. Um, one of the other updates that I um, want to point out as well that we can sort of watch over the next five to 10 years is EU defense, so European Union defense. So in Brussels, the EU bureaucracy is using Europe's geopolitical awakening. That's what they're calling this. So Europe is seeing, wow, right on our border, territory is still an issue. Um, and it's awoken them geopolitically. And they want to create a better security and defense policy essentially an EU army. An EU army has been discussed for, I don't know, a good few decades now, but it's never come to fruition because, you know, building up an army for a supranational body is like a really difficult thing to do. It's easier to do on a country by country level. That's that's just what it is. Um, and so they have this plan to potentially invest 9 9 billion euro or 9 billion dollars sorry into a European defense fund which would eventually give us 5000 troops by 2025. Here's here's the issue though. That 5000 troops by 2025, that was a goal that was created before the Ukraine war started. So you the Ukraine war actually hasn't changed their ambitions that much and 9 billion dollars the United States's um, defense budget uh, approved in December by Congress was $778 billion, and in the current budget proposal that um, President Biden released this morning, it's going to be increased by another, I think, $31 billion. Um, so in comparison, $9 billion like really isn't much. So if you hear chatter about like, oh, the EU is suddenly going to become this, you know, sort of player on the, def on the military stage, I, I don't really see that happening. But the U.S. will support it for sure, as long as there is a... Uh, uh, transatlantic friendly president in power and so this past week um president biden traveled to poland he traveled to europe um, to have g7 and nato meetings um, culminating in a big speech this past saturday so the purpose of the meetings was to coordinate response but also to really get allies on the same page and show major alignment and strength that is it was more of a, a political meeting rather than a military one so for 
a more concrete policy action. The U.S. and EU agreed on a new energy agreement. It's not super ambitious, but it'll create liquefied natural gas exports for the um, from the U.S. to Europe, and it will build up at least a small percentage of the EU's um, energy security. So the big question that hangs in the air for the alliance after the after the the, the G7 and NATO meetings um, is what will the alliance do? What will the United States do? What will Europe do? if Russia uses chemical or small nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Um, but all of this agreement and a repairing of relations between Poland and the U.S. as well at these meetings were undermined a, a bit by Biden, by President Biden's speech in an off-the-cuff remark at the end of his speech on Saturday to mark the end of all of these transatlantic meetings. I'll go over those remarks in a moment, but the speech largely stuck to transatlantic unity while framing the Russian invasion of Ukraine as part of a global battle between democracy and autocracy. And I just want to point out here, it's always been about democracy and autocracy with the Biden administration since they came in before this war had had even started. So, of course, the administration thought it would be China first. Um, but in any case, I think that besides this sort of idea of leading from behind or coordinating strong transatlantic relations, which is part of, I think, the emerging Biden doctrine, which we always have a doctrine whenever it comes to every single president. They always have their own foreign policy doctrine. Um, there is this sort of ideological notion that democracy is at risk and it's a battle between good and evil that we're seeing so far with the Biden administration. Um, you'll see more on this notion and on addressing China by the administration's sort of Indo-Pacific shift that they were planning before the Russian war. And while the Ukraine war will continue to take up the oxygen of the foreign policy machinations of the White House, NATO will have its next meeting in June. So they will have a lot more lead up to it, a lot more planning. This meeting that happened last week, it was a very sudden meeting. They didn't get a lot of planning. Um, so they'll have their meeting in June, and that is where they'll introduce a new strategic concept, which will in large part be about addressing China's um, power in the South China Sea over Taiwan and its muscle on the global stage. So that's that. Transitioning back to President Biden's speech and the nine words that reverberated around the world, the off-the-cuff remark right at the end of the speech, um, this is what he said, quote, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, end quote. So there are many that are calling this a gaffe because members of the White House have walked back the remarks somewhat, showing that it was an off-the-cuff remark and made many think that the U.S. would suddenly be on board for regime change when the Biden administration has been very clear from the beginning that they do not want regime change. Um, there's this very helpful tweet, and I'll put it in the episode notes, from Ambassador Daniel Freed, who is a member of the Atlantic Council, a big think tank. He said this on Twitter, which I found helpful. Um, he said, in quote, Biden seemed to be making a moral statement about Putin not remaining in power and a sound one, not a policy call for regime, regime change. The White House isn't walking it back so much as making the distinction, end quote. And then there are others who don't think that President Biden made a gaffe at all. They think that this was um, possibly on purpose. They think that it was a thinly veiled threat at, at um, President Putin, especially at a time when it's thought that Putin is contemplating the use of chemical or nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And honestly, this wouldn't surprise me. I, I, I have really no judgment here, but th this idea that it's not a gaffe wouldn't surprise me. And the idea that Biden was just making a moral statement, does it does comport with his rhetorical style. But I also think that Biden is extremely aware of the moment that he's in, the gravity of it. And allies probably are not agreeing with how hard to go after Putin rhetorically. And this might belie Biden's personal views that the West should be having, should be saying stronger words towards Putin. 
So, of course, the worry is that his words will rankle Putin so much that it causes him to use one of these big weapons. The Kremlin already had its spokespeople out saying, and this is a very much paraphrased by me, you know, see, we told you this is what the U.S. was always after, controlling Russia and taking over. And now Biden has revealed his cards. Um, but that's just propping up. That's just um, the propping up of their narrative machine. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in Putin's offices, to be frank, for this one. So... There's all that, some of the latest. What can we expect next? We will start to see if Putin plans to just annex off the east of Ukraine in order to save face and win back some of his dignity, or if he'll test the metal of the West by using chemical weapons, drawing in the U.S. further and NATO further. But one of the problems here is um, the Syria crisis over the past, uh, over a decade, and how the U.S. said chemical weapons were a red line in 2012 during the Obama administration, and the Syrian government started carrying out chemical attacks in 2013, and the U.S. took a whole entire year to do anything about it. Um, so Russia is obviously a geopolitical juggernaut, and we're dealing with a different aggressor here, but I don't expect Putin to be making similar deterrence calculations with chemical weapons as he is with nuclear weapons, which are far more destructive. Um, chemical weapons obviously fit in with a shock and awe campaign like I started with in the beginning, and it could be the thing that finally scares Ukrainians. That could be the calculation that this will be what finally scares them. And so um, I might be a bit cynical on this, or I could end up being way off, and Putin's military defeat is too widespread right now for him to be so bold, but he invaded in the first place, which surprised the West. So it would not surprise me if he used chemical weapons, especially because he saw the playbook in Syria. And he saw that the United States and the West did not respond. Then he invaded in 2014 in Crimea, and the West did not respond. Um, I'll stop there. I've already given us a lot to chew on, and I wanted to give a comprehensive update on where everything is in case you just haven't been able to keep up with the news. Do you have anything to add, Michael, or any thoughts? I mean, what could I possibly add to that? I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> I mean, uh, look, um, I, I guess, you know, uh, I, I, I think it, it was a mess. Uh, if it was not a gaffe, if Biden's statement was not a gaffe and it was on purpose, then they're taking a calculation or Biden's taking a calculation that being perceived as having made a gaffe yeah. is the, the political sort of consequences are worth whatever the, the geopolitical sort of intent, whatever the yes. intent of. And, and so... You know, as as analysts, you know, we can't uh, – it's very hard to sort of say, oh, you know, it, maybe it's not a gaffe. Maybe he yeah. maybe he meant to do it. I agree, though, Melissa. It's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's possible. Uh, Biden actually uh, took questions from the press today yep. and said exactly what – Freed that Atlanta yep. Council said That's so exactly Biden the line himself that said, yep. uh, you know, they asked, "Are you walking back uh, uh, th those nine words?" And President Biden responded, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what he said. He yep. said, "He said I'm, it was a moral statement." He, exactly, I'm not walking anything back. It was a moral conviction, not not a sort of statement of U.S. policy. Yeah, um, which, and, like I said, yeah, that sure. would completely comport with his rhetorical style. Like, yeah, right. He, well, and, he, and he I, cares about that. And I just think, I mean, I, I think, um, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people reading the newspaper over the last month has been, it's the kind of thing people 
have been muttering to themselves and saying across the yes. kitchen, uh, saying across the kitchen table. I think it's a, I think it's a normal sentiment. Like we we can't be we can't be in a world where people like Putin are in power. You mm-hmm. know that's not a policy yeah. statement. Um, I will say though, I'm 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 I am sympathetic to um, one thing that I said during the Trump administration was. Uh, I have always been pro talking points. Mm-hmm. I've always been <laughs> pro message discipline. Part part of what it means to not treat politics as entertainment is well, if politics isn't entertainment, then then, then politicians don't need to change how they say what they believe or what their position is uh, every time they talk, just so you you're hearing something fresh. Um, uh, you know, you know uh, they, they don't need to uh, say uh, sort of um, they, they don't need to sort of uh, be entertaining. Um, and, and so when it comes to this, I, I do take sort of seriously the criticisms of uh, of uh, look, the, the, the stakes are are really high. Uh, off teleprompter remarks to close a speech that uh, uh, at this moment, again, maybe there's some level of analysis, not just us, but that mm-hmm. that everyone else is missing. But you can only go on the fact that President Biden said something and White House officials felt the need to clarify. Yep. And, and so um, now the shame of it is this speech uh, uh, was historic. Yes. No, that's I mean, that's, it's still a historic speech. Yeah. I mean, I do think there were some over-the-top sort of, this is better, this this is more meaningful than uh, Reagan saying to tear down this wall. I'm, I'm not sure no. how to make that no. sort of comparison. But, but, uh, but it was... A really principled speech of American mm-hmm. values, of democratic values, of the transatlantic alliance, and and, and so it seems like, um, you know, another side of this sort of politically is Biden just sort of stepping on himself. Yeah. He, he had this uh, moment of uh, uh, of uh, uh, this display of presidential leadership after a month. I'd say where where he's. Really navigated this crisis like, incredibly like so, yes. uh, uh, and so you know this speech in Warsaw was was heading to be a sort of um, uh, a, a, a moment for the world and for Americans to reflect on American leadership over the last month, but but that, that uh, Republicans sort of pounced on this, and again, I don't think that all of the criticism of Biden is necessarily. Uh, off base. So, you I know, do think, yeah, yeah, I do think that history will look a bit more favorably on this speech. We'll forget the, it'll cover the hullabaloo around the nine words, but I think, well, as long as Putin does not like nuke us all or, you right. know, completely change But at the end train, of the day, the, uh, history but, will affirm the sentiment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because honestly, I've been waiting for this speech from Biden because I was a bit disappointed with the so too, the part on that he had on Russia. I agree. And we it, talked about that. I felt yeah. like he didn't rise to the moment rhetorically. Yeah. And, I, and it feels so just ridiculous that we feel that we need a bunch of words said by, you know, our president in order to feel like this 
the moment is being justified or there he's rising to the occasion but for whatever reason we do because we have these history books where yeah. we know what yeah. president sure. said at these critical times no, absolutely like fdr joining joining churchill and you know uh at, at those moments and reagan and you know tearing down this wall yeah, yeah, yeah. um i'm so glad that he went to poland it was deeply deeply needed again just to again reaffirm the transatlantic alliance which has already been just repaired beyond our wildest dreams because putin decided to do what he did um but to also repair relations with poland which is also really huge i mean our relations with poland have been awful especially yeah. since the Biden administration started and this i mean there's been a total stunning right just so stunning i don't think we have time to go into we this don't. but you know uh, really stunning i mean president biden goes to warsaw and not only does he give a speech talking about Poland as an ally in democracy, he quotes Pope John Paul II. I, I mean, it was just just uh, yeah. just incredible. And there's been a lot of tension around uh, Poland as sort of like a, uh, what would you say, like, like a Hungary junior, you know, sort of yeah, like Hungary, not as uh, bad as Orban, creeping but, but creeping, creeping authoritarianism, especially yeah. as a member of the EU. Hungary and Poland are members of the EU, so it's always been a concerning thing over the past several years where yeah. they've been going. So uh, we need to move to the next segment. Last thing I, I want to say is uh, I think your analysis of the import of Syria is unfortunately that's all like, i can think about right on the money um and look you, you could you could do these counterfactuals uh all, all day so that you know the, of the, the you know the weakness of it is uh you know the weakness of the argument is you know had we responded in syria what would the cost in in a more of forceful course. military yep. but we're in the situation we are now. I think it's very plausible. And there are really credible experts who know Putin very well who have said, backing up exactly what you've said, which is that he saw how Syria played out. And he, and, he drew conclusions from that and Crimea. Yep. No, uh, that and um, he... Uh, it's always been reported, and we, we have all the evidence in the world. They've never owned up to it. and I mean, why would they? But Russia was deeply sure. involved in Syria as well, sure. providing those chemical weapons yes, and right. ensuring that the Syrian government used it on its people. Yep. And so he has that playbook as well as, you know, actually using them. Yeah. So his, you know, his military has the ability to coordinate this. Yeah. Um, even though they say they don't even have chemical weapons. <laughs> we yeah. know that they do. We know that they coordinate it in Syria. So they have the experience as well. We can't discount that kind of experience and expertise. Yeah. And so, my, yeah, yeah I, I was, I think there are hypotheticals we could talk about, but I, sure. but I actually don't want to talk about, um, I think we could talk about what the ramifications of Russia using chemical weapons in Ukraine will be uh, if, if it happens. I, I think the thing to say now is um, that the human cost would yeah. be just uh, extraordinary and um, and it would certainly provoke another decision point for NATO yep for the United States yep frankly I'm not sure that the outcome of that sort of decision would be much different than what we're seeing 
it, no. it, I think it'll be sanctions and I don't think it'll be anything more. Yeah. And I think history will decide yep. whether or not that was the right decision, not just strategically or geopolitically, but morally. Right. Ethically. Right. I mean, it seemed what Biden said in Poland was he warned Putin against uh, uh, threatening an inch of NATO territory. Mm-hmm. And right again, we've talked about this before, but right, the subtext there seems to me to be we'll do sanctions, we'll find ways to sort of make you pay for what happens in Ukraine, but it's going to fall short mm-hmm. of American troops on the ground. Right. And I'll just end with this, and then we're going to move on to our next topic. But if any of this is infuriating you, the fact that um, nuclear weapons are on the table and chemical weapons are on the table, um, and why the United States or NATO cannot um, more intervene more clearly, whether it be with a no-fly zone, a humanitarian zone in which we would need troops, even if you think, oh, we actually just need to be engaging on the ground with troops. There are definitely, there's a bunch of organizations um, and groups, and if you have any kind of wealth or power to your name, you can be joining the boards of some of these organizations that are anti-nuke and anti-chemical weapon. These weapons should not exist. They're pure evil. There's nothing good about them. Um, They will never be used for good. And it's one of the reasons why the war is going the way that it has to and the West is making the decisions that it has to make is because these two things exist. Let's let's end it there. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about a really interesting focus group uh, that was uh, uh, organized by the New York Times. Uh, this is Where is the Love? We're back. This is Where is the Love? And uh, again, thank you, Melissa, for for that, catching us up on Ukraine. Uh, To uh, wrap up the episode uh, this week, I want to talk about this focus group the New York Times pulled together. So the New York Times, uh, basically this year, has been pulling together a series of focus groups with Mm -hmm. different... uh, demographics yep and so they um uh, i believe they they've done a previous one with uh with just women mm-hmm. uh but but this one is with uh, teenagers with high yes. school uh, kids in high school uh from various geographic regions i believe and it yep. looked to be done over zoom it was run by someone who does focus groups and I have to say there there was I was I was surprised. Now right, so this is just a focus group. It's, uh, it's 12, 12 teens. Tw- 12 teens. Um uh so you know, it's it's basically uh qualitative data, not yep. quantitative. Um but it is worth digging into a bit and considering yes, and definitely for me challenging some assumptions yep. I had or or not even that but just um, things that I had not taken 
some things were raised that I'm going to take. It's not that I didn't take them seriously before, but uh, this this focus group made me think I need to take it a bit more uh, seriously. Uh, for, mm-hmm. for me, and want to hear what stuck out to you, but for for me, one of the um, you know, I have considered a bit that this idea of cancel culture is being felt by like Gen X and up yeah. and by those with platforms, like yeah. like those with though like media personalities, uh, CEOs, you know, p- people who are running, who are sort of in power, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, not no, I don't want to overstate that. I'm, I'm aware of, of other challenges, but but that's where I thought sort of the nexus of the cancel culture uh, d- debate was. I I don't I don't know if you were surprised. I was really surprised how resonant the idea of I'm afraid to speak up in class. Uh, I am worried that I'll be misinterpreted was among teenagers among their peers um in a way that seemed to me to be like different than like uh just peer pressure and sort of wanting to be liked and that kind of thing i i was surprised a bit by how how resonant those concerns were and and moving forward i want to dig a bit deeper sort of into that and i'm going to have an eye more on how um uh, on on how that's playing out uh, there was a, and, and maybe this is a pivot to other themes but uh, sort of coming out of the discussion about being afraid to sort of share your opinion uh, one of the uh, uh, members of the focus group and I think this was kind of affirmed by others stressed the sort of anonymity of social media mm-hmm. so 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 uh, uh, some of the students said they felt more like themselves online than in person. Yep. Which is a really shocking thing. And the reason the reason that was given was uh, sort of online, I can sort of curate how I'm mm-hmm. uh, how I'm presenting myself. That's right. Uh, and I there. You know, it would say like I can I can project myself as I want to project myself, uh, and so that that was interesting. I think politically, here's here's the last thing I want to say on this, Melissa. Um, politically, uh, if you have a, a young, it's one thing to have older folks who are sort of responding to. You know, passing, tr- you know, the, the 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 new views of the young, and feeling out of date, out of touch. If we have a a, a, a coming generation that feels like they are unable to be themselves in public in society, the pub, the political ramifications of that sort of sentiment and how it gets spilled out into the public, um, I think are are really significant. 
to me, it sets up for a kind of reactionary politics from mm-hmm. the young that I think would surprise a lot of people who have their views about sort of how the young vote and will vote, uh, et cetera. And so I thought that was interesting. But, but what else did you did you find interesting about this focus group? There, I, I mean, there there are a few things here. Uh, the first thing I want to point out is there's there. I felt it throughout the entire because about I was about halfway through the interview and I thought I need to know what socioeconomic bracket these these kids are in or if it's a di- diverse group of kids because we're given their name, their age, and their their race or or ethnicity. Um, we're not told their gender and we're not told their socioeconomic status. Um, and I really wish I knew that because. This is a complete guess, folks, to listeners, um, so you might feel differently, and I actually would like to know if you feel differently. I felt like these kids were reading either middle to middle, up, upper middle class, hmm. and I think that really matters with any of these answers um, because it, uh, th- they were asked questions on mental health, whether or not they're addicted to social media or their phones, Um you know, Which, like, basically all of them did. All I mean, of them said that, but a, but most of them felt the answers, though they they a they could recognize in the first place, which is very good for teens to be introspective like that, to know that, to realize that about themselves. To for me, yeah, I mean, I think there's a good side of that that they they are able to recognize that. The bad side is is that they feel they consciously feel trapped by. Yeah. Technology. Yeah. Like, like they feel that they can't, you know, is it worse to be unaware of that you're sort of... Uh, I think it's worse. Uh, entrapped in something like that? Or is it worse to 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 feel like you're trapped and not be able to escape from it? Well, I mean, here, but yeah. here's the thing, though. Several of them gave responses on what they're doing in, in terms of that's, mitigating that's their time. True. That's so they're true. actively thinking that through how true. to how to become better with their addiction. So yeah, for me, yeah, yeah. I think it's better for them no, to know because they're already right. showing that they're willing to work on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, so that was really point. that was really surprising to me. The other, they were asked about COVID, about you know how has COVID affected you, and you know definitely yes, some felt like they were their learning was affected huh? um, because they said they said that virtual learning just wasn't good enough and this year a lot of them said I feel really privileged because now I'm back in class and I'm learning a lot more and catching up and I mean there's that the use of the role of technology and how addicted they are the answers that they are giving here I felt like and again this is just 12 kids I would love to see multiple focus groups across socioeconomic statuses make sure they're geographically um, diverse asking these same questions of teens because especially the answers on COVID the answers on like addiction made me feel much more confident about you know potentially what's going on with their cohort um of their generation because this is obviously just a subset of gen z um kind of the middle to the tail end of gen z um we're told that you know teens are ravaged teens and all kids are ravaged by covid that they're completely behind that their mental health is tanked simply because of covid not because of other things that you know maybe our you know modern societal life causes a lot of depression um we're being told all these narratives and i and these focus groups give us a chance to say are these assumptions that we're made that we're talking about this generation are they true? Yeah. Because we're actually talking to them and actually finding out rather than talking for them. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's why I'm really grateful for this. And uh, But I would love t- 
to read 20 other 12-person focus groups. Yeah. Truly, for real. Me, me too. Specifically of teens. All the other groups in New York Times is interviewed. Yeah, sure, fine, interesting. This is yeah. the group I'm interested in most. Yeah. Um, you had one other interesting... So I agree with you. You had one other interesting observation uh, near the end of the of the of the focus group when they're asked uh what would you ask your 30 or 40 year old (laughs) self yes so michael had a really cute observation immediately and me i immediately saw that um you know so they said you know what would you ask your 30 or 40 year old self so a lot of that michael pointed this out first how cute it was the lot of them would check in on their parents yeah ask how their parents are if they're still okay it's very sweet (laughs) you ask them when you're 30, 40, what, what is the question that you'd ask? And yeah, half of them were like, you know, my parents are super important to me. I'd want to make sure they were okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like. Yeah, but not a single one said, you know, am I married or am I in a, you know, do I have a significant other? Or am I in a long-term relationship? Do I have a partner? None of them said that. And only one of them mentioned kids. Yeah. It's super interesting, right? I, I mean, just uh I mean, right, it suggests this is why I'd like to do 20 more of these focus groups, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. um, And I'd be interested for listeners who are parents of teens, read this and let us know if if the sort of the responses of the teens um, uh, uh, sound like your kid even better. Ask them the questions. Ask, ask them the questions and let us know what they say. I mean, we we love to we love to hear that. Um, Should we gather a bunch of where is the love teens and run our own focus group? Hey, l- listen, if uh, if we hear back from six listeners uh, who are parents of teens, we will do a focus group with your teens <laughs> uh, and. Uh, and and see what we could glean out of it. I, I'd love to do that. But uh, so I, I think your insight is so uh, so precious. Uh, I I I I wonder how much of it relates to the conversation we had last week with Christine. Yeah. And just what an absolute mess. <laughs> Obviously, Christine's mostly talking about sort of the dating scene mm-hmm. for once you're in college yes, and beyond adults. Uh, for adults. Um, but teens are looking out there and they yeah, have older siblings if, and if, they see. If all of these other areas, like, you know, feeling like they can speak up about any issue, that kind of thing, if all of that is permeating into their their little cohort, I would imagine that all of what Christine is talking about with sex and dating is also permeating. Yes. They're not, I mean, if they, if they have full access to social media, they're seeing it all. And, and then the other thing, you know, um, and again, don't want to overstate it. It's a focus group, but it's something that I found in uh, in sort of uh, my experience, frankly, in policy circles, not to mention just, but adults often project mm-hmm. a, sexu- uh, a sexuality onto yep. teens mm-hmm. that teens themselves do not have mm-hmm. or do not have to the extent... It's often adults who are projecting back onto teens the idea that teens are thinking about sex all the time or thinking about... And certainly, you know, uh, uh, teens are... I I don't mean to suggest that those kinds of... But 
there, there is a dynamic there, and, 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 I, and I do think it's it's one that's uh, the adults should spend some time thinking about why they insist on projecting these. So, for instance, uh, I have heard adults, very serious adults, say things like, and I'll just say it, there have been some politicians that I've worked with in very important positions who have said things like, oh, you know, teenagers, you're not going to stop them from having sex. Well, if you look at the CDC data, uh, a half of um, American teens graduate high school without having had sex. So like a, so a half of uh, uh, folks who have, who have gone through high school, so 18 and under, have, have not had sex. So, so why do adults tell this story that, uh-huh. oh, it's impossible to get through high school without having, like wh- what? I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of weird. It's kind of weird that grown adults would be insisting on the sexuality of kids like that when it isn't even borne out by the numbers. I, I so just go. I completely agree. Just going back to, I was trying to get at this before, but I think adults, especially the the uh, the current media narratives um, that we're perpetuating on teens, I think they're. I would bet that a lot of them aren't accurate, and that's why this piqued my interest in that way because I feel like a lot of what they're saying isn't comporting with what we're being told in article after article that's wringing its hands about this, you know, about the younger part of Gen Z and the start of Gen Alpha. Um, that's why I want, I would love to talk to more because I think that some of the things, I think we're placing a lot of, I think we're projecting a lot onto this particular yes. age group that I don't think, I think is drowning out their actual real lived experience. I mean, this is part of why, the reason why I have, the problems I have with euphoria. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> Well, hey, so uh, so yeah, you know, if nothing comes of it, nothing comes of it. But we're extending the weed love. Michael love, and love. I, in our professional lives, also run focus groups. We actually do know how to run focus yes, groups. Yes, yes, yeah. No, it wouldn't be that far of a that far of a stretch. We'd love to to do that. So let us know, and we'll we'll uh, you know we could explore that. But uh, hope you'll check out the New York Times focus group uh, uh, conversation. Um, uh, right, there are some real challenges. The mental health pieces are really troubling. Absolutely. But goodness, is there so much good going on with our young people? And what promise uh, do they have? Uh, what what possibilities are, are there uh, if they're supportive, uh, if they're supported? Um, and yeah. so you'll also read the interview in... in uh, and and be moved by the the, the tenderness of, of, mm-hmm. of these of these young. I people. will always say it. I love Gen Z so much. I know that you do. Millennials you do. and on up always wring their hands about Gen Z, but I love Gen Z to death. Yeah, I think they're wonderful. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, really good. Uh, to uh, this episode is coming late. I appreciate folks' patience uh, for a couple days. Um, but excited to be able to record this once we uh, got back from from travel. Uh, as always, you can subscribe at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Get this podcast and so much more in your inbox uh, throughout the week. Melissa, uh, anything you want to say uh, before we wrap this episode up? I think this is where I say no thoughts, just vibes.
I think this is becoming one of my sags for this podcast. We're just developing catchphrases for you as we, as we go. We are. No, but really, I mean, once we get to an end of an episode, there's kind of a bunch of air whooshing around in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being really real with you here, folks. Yeah, so real. The synapses are no longer connecting by the time we get to the end of an episode. But I still love you, even at the end of the episode. And this is Where is the Love? We'll uh, talk to you. I mean, the good thing about having an episode come out two days late is the next episode will come out sooner than you think. think. All right, folks. uh, Take care of yourselves. Bye. Well, hello, dear. It's so good to uh, be sitting down with you. We've been away for uh, a bit of time with travel. I think we might have forgotten to say, this is where is the love. Oh, okay, buddy.